15-year-old female with anxiety and depression presented to the emergency department with her mom. After telling the mom she ingested some medication from a friend's house in a self-harm attempt, they arrived to the emergency department about an hour after the ingestion happened. She wasn't sure what the medication was, but she took about 30 tablets. She was observed in the emergency department for six hours, where she was asymptomatic, had normal labs, and just a mild tachycardia to 105, which the team thought was related to her anxiety. She was discharged to a psychiatric facility for continued workup of her depression, and while there, she began to complain of restlessness and worsening anxiety. She was really having trouble getting to sleep. Suddenly, eight hours after she left the emergency department, she had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. EMS was called, who rushed her back to the emergency department where she continued to experience multiple repeated seizures and had a brief cardiac arrest. ROSC was quickly achieved after a few rounds of CPR, and they gave benzodiazepines and intubated the patient. Her post-arrest ECG revealed sinus tachycardia, a first-degree heart block, and a wide QRS. She developed progressive hypotension, and an echo showed she actually had poor cardiac output, so she was placed on ECMO. Unfortunately, the patient continued to decompensate, and eventually care was withdrawn six days later. What possible toxin could cause such a severe outcome so many hours after ingestion, even being cleared by the emergency department? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. You are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning by people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And with me, as always, my lovely co-host, Toxo. G'day, Ryan. It's me, Toxo. Toxo, are you changing your voice again? The listeners just got used to you being British. Where's your sense of stability? But, Ryan, change is the fundamental aspect of existence. Despite our limited perspectives making us feel like our current conditions are permanent, Absolutely nothing in life is. The blockbuster down the street when I was growing up as a young robot is now a daycare, and in 100 years it will probably be something else, or nothing at all. Legacy and institutions rise and fall over and over. Our individual identities, however you define them, constantly changes the conditions of our environment, priorities, and needs change. Are you trying to tell me that you're not you when you're hungry? Even spouses, or family, that we build our lives around, will one day pass away. And we may still be here, or vice versa. Sadly, no relationship is permanent. You're kind of bumming me out here, Tox, so I was really just trying to figure out why you changed your voice. But it's not sad. The beauty is the sooner we realize this impermanence, the sooner we can savor each ephemeral moment we have with our loved ones and enjoy the circumstances that we are currently in. This is taking a pretty weird philosophical turn, Toxa. To balk at the change in my voice is balk at the nature of existence. If the listeners are upset about anything, it should be their own minds for creating a false sense of permanency that prevents them from being grateful for the conditions they are thriving in now, which will one day undoubtedly change. Besides, my old voice modulator broke. And since this podcast does not make any money, who is going to pay for a new voice? Hmm. You do make a compelling argument. And we all know the Australians do some of the best talks research anyway, so I am fully on board. 
Whatever gets you to stop terrifying the listeners with existential problems. We have a really topical and important topic today that's going to be relevant to so many people now and in the coming years. But some fun news about this show. We're going to have a number of special guests joining the show to talk about one specific aspect of poisoning from this substance. And each one of those guests will be with me on a mini episode where we dive into that specific topic going more in-depth into the literature and useful clinical information related to it. So be sure to check out the mini-episodes wherever you're listening to this. I think two are going to make it out in time for this episode release, and we'll have a few more coming after the show. Okay, I can't wait to show you what this toxin is, but first we have to get to the listener guesses, my favorite part. For those of you with limited time or limited attention span, you can skip right to learning what the poison is and all about its history mechanism, and treatment at minute 3155. You're welcome. And for this segment, I'm going to introduce our first special guest. Dr. Ari Phillip, MD, is going to be joining us to help go through listener guesses and to help with another mini episode that you'll find out about in just a bit. Hey there, my name is Ari Phillip. I'm the uh, medical director of the Arkansas Poison Center, and I work here in the emergency department at UAMS in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you so much for joining the show today. We're going to dive into the listener emails, and Dr. Phillips going to be helping me read them. So, Toxo, can you roll the emails? Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the poison verse. Okay, the first email we have here is from listener Stephanie Werfel. And I probably just butchered that name. I'm really sorry. Stephanie says, hi, my guess is colchicine. Thanks. Stephanie Werfel, PharmD, BCPS, Emergency Department Pharmacist at St. Peter's Health in Helena, Montana. That is a really interesting guess. And colchicine does cause somewhat delayed toxicity. However, I would expect to see maybe more GI symptoms initially in this case. Uh, and I often don't see neurologic symptoms manifest till much, much later. Colchicine is a cellular toxin. It inhibits uh, cellular uh, replication. So our fastly replicating cell lines, such as the hair and the GI cells, are usually the first thing to take a big hit. So I think that's a great guess, Stephanie, uh, but would expect to see more GI symptoms early and maybe not this uh, uh, neurologic symptoms so early. I don't know about you. What, what do you think, Dr. Phillip? Yeah, I agree. Probably more so GI symptoms. And uh, when you start to see the cardiac compromise, um, really, that's going to be probably a little late when the patient's already quite sick. Yeah. Would you like to read the next one for us? Sure. So the next one comes from Joseph Ryan. It says, hi, I'd like to take a guess for episode 18. It sounds like the patient has serotonin syndrome. The patient must have overdosed on an SSRI or SNRI. Severe cases of serotonin syndrome can induce tremors, seizures, dangerously high body temperature, high blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, agitation, and breakdown of muscle. So I do like this response. I think that there are um, certainly some things in the history and um, trajectory that suggest uh, SSRI or SNRI. The one thing that, that gets me here is the time course. You know, it makes me think that there's something else going on. Um, and usually things like seizure tend to be more of late and morbid findings in some of these injections. Um, so it kind of raises raises some eyebrows at this one. Right. Plus, 
There's no way I would do a case of serotonin syndrome without giving the listeners a clue of hyperreflexia. <laughs> but that's that's a great one. Great job, Joseph. Uh, this next one comes from listener Tyler Phelan. And they say, based on this description and patient history, I'm concerned she had a withdrawal of benzodiazepines or barbiturates. The one finding that is throwing me off is the wide QRS, which maybe was due to compressions and not the overdose itself. Thanks, Tyler. Really interesting. That's that's a uh, other than the history of ingestion. Although patients do have comorbid illnesses all the time, you know, uh, and you absolutely could see seizures as well as tremor, tachycardia um, with GABAergic agent withdrawal. So very interesting thought, uh, but I'm not sure we're there yet. Yeah, and uh, I will just say that I. I you find it interesting? Um, I sometimes consider when a patient has a prolonged QRS that might not necessarily be from intrinsic from the agent, but in these really sick patients, um, just severe acidemia um, and critical illness might alter the conduction somewhat. Right. You can have delayed ventricular depolarization, which gives you a wide QRS from a lot of things. But yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. You want to grab the next one? Sure. So next guest from Lauren Postal. Uh, sorry if I uh, butchered your name a little bit. Uh, she says, hi, I'm going to guess the Lutheraxin for episode 18. That was my initial thought because of the increased heart rate and restlessness. So I read up on it a little more and saw they can have delayed effects due to the conversion of T4 to T3. The other symptoms seem consistent with what was described in the case um, in Lauren's writing test from uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. So um, some of the features in here might be suggestive of um, thyrotoxicosis, which is something that I keep in mind in patients who I'm concerned for serotonin toxicity. But it's really hard to get um, toxic from a single acute ingestion of um, uh, T4, at least uh, in such an acute time course. Don't really see as much in the way of neurologic manifestations. Um, and so this one is uh, is lower down on my list. And really, um, the any sort of toxicity tends to be days out. Right. This almost seems early, but way to go, Lauren, on keying in on the delayed toxicity. And a classic late toxicity poison is levothyroxine because the T4 needs to get converted to T3 to actually do the damage. And, you know, there's case reports of people developing symptoms two weeks out, which is just wild to me. That's a that's an interesting guess, and I love the thought process. Lauren is a biology student in a pharmacy tech, so keep up the good work, Lauren. Uh, this next guest comes from listener Michael Johnson, and he says, tricyclic antidepressant, mild symptoms initially, patient is discharged, more medications then flood the system, causing a severe reaction. Was sodium bicarb used? Question mark. Okay. Interesting guess. Uh, tricyclic antidepressants absolutely can have delayed gastric emptying. There's actually some data out there to support using t uh, charcoal up to four hours out in TCA overdose because it can slow gastric emptying. But you do usually see symptoms develop a little bit faster than, you know, 14 hours. So uh, I'm not sure where the, it's a great thought with the wide QRS. And yes, you'll find out sodium bicarb was attempted to be used. But uh, this, I, I don't think we're there yet. How about the next one? Yeah, so the next one comes from Aaron Johnson, writes, hey, Ryan, interesting but sad case given the onset of being delayed by eight hours from the time of ingestion and the initial symptoms of tachycardia, restlessness, insomnia, and seizures. My first thought was an extended release simulant or some kind of even bupropion. 
I'm aware of cardiotoxicity resulting from any of these agents, and it's impossible to know if the damage to the heart was from a drug with a prolonged half-life or from the initial insult with the info provided. Your comment about this toxin becoming more and more relevant to practice leads me down the path of a supplement. I considered Kratom, but I would have guessed the onset to be faster in such a case. That is my very crude raw guess. Can't wait to hear the answer. So, all right, I think uh, potentially onto something over here. Uh, we'll definitely worry about our, our delayed presentation and um, the symptoms here sound fairly congruent with what we're, uh, what we're seeing. Um, the cardiotoxicity, certainly uh, bupropion, it, it can be cardiotoxic. Um, we worry about what happens with the QRS. Um, and um, the other guess that's in there is uh, Kratom. This is something to my awareness, um, I'm not sure of any major hemodynamic compromise that happens with this. Um, I know it can sometimes cause some weird features like um, intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for novel agents uh, right. that might be causing unusual presentations. And so um, I totally agree with you. Important to keep a broad differential of, of supplements and other weird agents that patients could even be withdrawing from, too. That one was from Aaron Johnson, a clinical pharmacist at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital. Thanks for writing in, Aaron. I think that was a really uh, interesting guess. This next one is from Tony Spadaro. Uh, he says, hi, Ryan, I am a current PGY4 resident in emergency medicine at UPenn and just matched into a medical toxicology fellowship for next year. Love the show. Wow. Congrats, Tony. Tony goes on to say, I'm going to guess bupropion, probably the XL formulation known to have delayed onset seizures that can develop up to 24 hours after ingestion. Additionally, the anxiety and tachycardia beforehand is suspicious for something like bupropion as it can, as it has a structure like a cathinone, so it can be stimulating. Also implicated in serotonin syndrome. The QRS widening from bupropion might be due to blocking gap junctions between cardiac myocytes rather than sodium channel blocking and less likely to respond to bicarb, hence the deterioration and need for ECMO. There are some other toxins with delayed onset toxicity with an initial asymptomatic phase, like iron, to consider. But propion really fits the picture here. Thanks, Tony Spadero. All right, we're starting to see some themes here. Here in another bupropion. Great guest, Tony, and thanks for writing into the show. Congratulations, Tony. Um, and then next guest comes from David Carroll. I says, he writes, hi, Ryan, I'm Dave, a PGY4 emergency medicine resident in Michigan, a recently matched medical toxicology fellow. Congratulations as well. Wow. That, that is an eerily yeah. similar email. <laughs> yeah. uh, and a huge fan of your amazing show. Uh, I believe the most likely culprit explaining this 15-year-old female seizure, 15 hours post-ingestion with a wide QRS on her ECG and cardiogenic shock requiring ECMO is almost certainly a sustained slash delayed release formulation of bupropion, e.g. XL. Reasoning for my conclusion is as follows. Suggestion were in pill form, which rules out non-pharmaceutical possibilities such as camphor, pyrethroids, or ingestion of, say, gyrometra esculenta with the side of water hemlock. That'd be an interesting combination. Uh, the mild persistent tachycardia in the ED makes me think of diphenhydramine or a tricyclic antidepressant, but the absence of significant antihistaminic sedation, I think, is the former unlikely, and the latter should manifest within at least the first few hours. So whistleism was a consideration, but I wouldn't expect a latent period after such a large ingestion. 
without nausea vomiting and the tachypnea and diaphoresis would be somewhat evident. Um, uh, isoniazid was another consideration, but onset would be much sooner. I wouldn't expect a cardiogenic shock. And maybe it would be a refractory to GABA agonists, which were successfully used in this case. So we're left with bupropion. 30 pills would equate to 3,000 to 6,000 milligrams, depending on tablet strength, more than enough to cause seizures. She's tachycardic in the ED, both consistent with an increase in synaptic dopamine and norepinephrine, and is one of the noted associations with the delayed development of delayed seizures, along with also mental status. Finally, the gap junction inhibition, which can occur with bupropion toxicity, could account for both the YQRS and severe cardiomyopathy. Hopefully, my reasoning makes sense and looking forward, looking very forward to the episode. Sincerely, Dave. Um, certainly, the reasoning makes sense. And congratulations again. That is a really well thought out and, and thorough guess. So thanks, Dave Carroll. Uh, Dave also put in a plug that hopefully he could be the sticker winner this week. And, you know, ask and you might receive, Dave. Great, great chance. All right. Um, this next one comes from listener Nicholas Huzak, and he says, gotta be bupropion. <laughs> one of the few toxins where a six-hour OBS period may be insufficient to capture the onset of toxicity and certainly is in line with repeated seizures, prolonged QRS, and cardiac arrest. We had a very similar case at Maryland, and the patient even showed signs consistent with brain death for the first seven days. Wow. Luckily, we had ordered hydroxybupropion levels to justify keeping supportive care, and miraculously, she was extubated and eventually discharged with no major permanent deficits after a two-month hospital stay. That is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that uh, clinical case with us, Nick. Uh, Nick goes on to say, I enjoy your cases and talks, Pearls. Good way for me to stay fresh on all things talks now that I've finished fellowship. Looking forward to more content in the future best Nick Huzak. Well, thank you for writing in, Nick. I believe you are a recent graduate of the Clinical Pharmacy uh, Toxicology Fellowship at Maryland, and congrats on that. That's a fantastic program. I'm sure you got great training. Uh, that's a really terrifying case that he mentioned there, a two-month stay and uh, presumed brain death, but finally actually woke up. Yeah, very cool case. Uh, commend you on uh, keeping that patient hooked up to the vent. And I encourage everyone to take a peek at ACMT's uh, position statement on brain death testing in the poison patient. Yes. And uh, we actually just released an episode. It was a high-yield abstract review of um, North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology abstracts. And we talk about an abstract in there where a patient actually had a brain death imaging study that showed no perfusion, but later actually woke up. And we talk about the implications from that study about how we need to manage declaring brain death in these patients with use of the ACFT 2017 guidelines. But one thing that really probably should be done more often is confirmation of absent drug levels by sending uh, uh, what what Nick Huzak mentions here by sending off some levels. If you want to hear more about that, you can check, up, check out episode 18, the High Yield Abstract Review. Uh, okay, would you like to grab the next one for us, Dr. Phillips? Sure. Next one comes from Ari Bader, fellow Ari. Maybe a bupropion ingestion can cause tachycardia, restlessness, hypotension, dysrhythmias, and in large amounts, QRS slash QTC prolongation in status epilepticus. Hallmark is delayed seizures delayed up to 24 hours. Nice, succinct, um, and agree with you. 
Absolutely. And I believe Ari Bader is actually a sea spy at the Nebraska Poison Control Center per their email signature. So thanks for listening, Ari. All right. Our next one comes from Ann Dunlop. I really like this, guys. This is fantastic. So she says, hi, Ryan. I have absolutely no medical background, English major over here, and I have a boring office job. Toxicology is one of my favorite internet niches, and while working, I listen to a ton of podcasts. Anyways, as a lay person, sounds like bupropion or Wellbutrin overdose. I know from your podcast and others that it's a very concerning drug for toxicologists and emergency room folks. It's prescribed commonly enough that it'd be easy for a teen to take it from a friend. I know seizures are one of the main concerns with this drug. I also heard somewhere there's a delay in overdose symptoms. Not sure if that has to do with the extended release. So someone may appear fine at first. Increased anxiety also sounds like Wellbutrin because it's stimulant-ish, to use the technical term. And unfortunately, I also think there's no real treatment other than supportive cares. Let me know. I get excited when I guess correctly because my last hard science classes were in high school and I'm in my 30s. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. P.S. My husband jokes that I shouldn't be learning so much about poisoning for fun. <laughs> that is, I am uh, astounded and impressed. Uh, Anne, thank you for writing in a, a budding toxicologist you may be that you really hit on a lot of key interesting points about this case delayed toxicity stimulant toxidrome uh really fascinating we we will see if you are right or not but great great guess yeah it makes me a little insecure that uh i probably needed nine years of post undergrad medical education to <laughs> arrive at even that in my differential so <laughs> that's great um, the next uh, response comes from Ed Kroom, uh, nice and succinct. My guess is bupropion or ilbutrin, as the fantastic Mr. Tox and Howard like to call it, Ed. And Ed is a repeat guest for the show. Thanks for writing in, Ed. Really appreciate it. Uh, this next one comes from listener Kirk Fetters. He says, hi, Ryan and Toxo. This case, like many of the cases, has me and my wife, Megan Fetters, PharmD, BCCCP, very cool. Stumped, but we'll take a stab. Our patient is a young, healthy woman who intentionally ingests a large quantity of medication, has delayed onset seizures, refractory cardiogenic shock, and evidence of cardiac conduction delay in the form of PR and QRS prolongation. The delayed onset has us thinking about XL formulations and or anticholinergic properties. And the syndrome of PR, QRS prolongation, cardiogenic shock, and seizures makes us think about sodium channel blockers. Great thought. The overlap in that Venn diagram points to tricyclic antidepressants, also a good thought, though despite their anticholinergic properties, it seems that the toxicity from these has a more rapid onset than the case, and these are no longer commonly prescribed as they once were. Very great deduction there. Propafenone seems to cause more cardiogenic shock, PR prolongation, and mortality than other sodium channel blockers we were able to find in the literature. But this is an uncommon medication, and the toxicity would probably be, probably be more rapid in onset. While scanning some articles about TCA overdose, I learned that bupropion can cause this toxidrome, as well in massive overdoses, such as 9 to 13.5 grams, which would be 30, 300 to 450 milligram tablets. 
Despite not having sodium channel properties, it is uh, sodium channel blocking properties. It is commonly prescribed and accessible as XL formulations. Would cause the anxiety and tachycardia described in the beginning of this case and cause a delayed onset seizure and cardiogenic shock. Our final answer is bupropion XL. Love the show. Kirk Fetters, a resident physician, PGY3 at the Department of Medicine and UCLA Medical Center. Fantastic guest, and I love watching the rabbit hole that you went down there, Kirk. So thank you for writing in, and, and I appreciate hearing the thought process. Uh, I'll cover this next one here. This one's from listener Taylor Sanders, who says, with delayed onset, seizures, and arrest, my initial thought is amygdalin capsules. Oh, all right. I like this one. These would require time for intestinal beta-glucosidase-mediated hydrogen cyanide to form. Right. So this is a delayed onset cyanide producer. Once the cyanide is formed, one would expect tachycardia, anxiety, restlessness, agitation, and further progressed seizures and cardiovascular collapse. The case didn't mention an arrhythmia, just cardiac arrest, which makes me suspect she was bradycardic or hypotensive. Cyanide is also associated with PR prolongation, Brugada type changes on an EKG, and hyperkalemia. Uh, and overall, due to the decreased ATP, because sodium potassium ATPase is uh, the listener used an expletive here. I'll go ahead and color that out, but I think you understand. Um, membrane potential becomes more positive, which inactivates sodium channels, leading to a widened QRS. So all of the symptoms could be tied to a cyanogenic glycoside, specifically amygdalin, or it's carbamazepine, clinical correlate recommended. <laughs> all right, well, definitely one of our most colorful guesses. And I certainly like the idea, you know, amygdalin every year, some snake oil salesman tries to sell vitamin B17 or amygdalin uh, to somebody with cancer saying that it'll get metabolized into cyanide and treat their cancer, but it can actually, you know, an overdose have some pretty serious effects. There's been deaths and in theory it would be delayed because you have to turn it into cyanide. So really um, a unique perspective and great guess. Uh, do you want to grab the next one for us? Sure. So next one comes from Charles Colvin. He writes, hey, Ryan, I could be totally wrong, but my guess is that the patient was suffering from a venlafaxine overdose. I think it's venlafaxine instead of citalopram because the patient presented with tachycardia as opposed to bradycardia. Additionally, the first degree heart block and poor cardiac output could be a result of venlafaxine's ability to block cardiac sodium channels. The final part of the case that makes me think it is a venlafaxine overdose is the somewhat delayed onset of major toxicity. This would make sense given the widespread use of XR venlafaxine formulations. Anyways, that's my guess. Love the show and keep up the good work. So I, I really like this guess. I know that there have been a lot of answers proposing other solutions, but um, uh, I mean, it, it hits hits all the checkboxes, potential for delayed onset seizures, which venlafaxine does have, QRS prolongation from sodium blockade. Um, and then all of the all the other symptoms that we're seeing um, really potentially fit in. So talipram is another very good thought because it does have that um, sodium channel blocking uh, capability in high doses in addition to the QT prolongation, um, though I might expect the onset to be probably a little bit sooner. Sooner. Yeah, very interesting. You know, many people have narrowed in on an XL bupropion, but there are other SNRI type compounds with extended release that can have pretty similar toxidromes. Okay, this next one comes from Daniel Giddings. 
Howdy, Ryan. Just finished listening to your mystery case. This sure sounds like bupropion. Comes in ER formulations for delayed toxicity. Seizures are common in large overdose, which this definitely would be. And the progressive cardiotoxicity with QRS widening and heart failure could be due to gap junction blockade. On the differential, are TCAs, SSRI, SNRI, anticholinergic drugs, maybe mexilotine? Love the show, and nice to finally meet you in person at mid-year. Daniel Giddings, emergency medicine pharmacist uh, and PGI-1 pharmacy residency program director at St. David's South Austin Medical Center. Thank you for writing in, Daniel. Uh, I think he was referring to ASHP's mid-year meeting, which I was just at, and I actually got to meet a lot of fans of the Poison Lab, and I just want to say thank you to those people who came up and told me they liked listening to the show. It's always helpful to know I'm not shouting into the void. So. I appreciate that. Now, now this would bring us to our last guest. I guess I've torn. Should I read this or should you read this? Uh, I'm I'm happy to uh, pre- present it in my own voice. Okay, so this guest comes from Dr. Ari Phillip, uh, who had such a great guest that I actually wanted to invite him onto the show to help us read guesses and maybe create a little bit of a of a side episode with me after this. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But please go ahead and and read your guest. Okay, okay, so in my heart of hearts, like probably most of the responses you will receive, I think this is probably bupropion XL. This drug is notorious for delayed onset seizures. Often the sentinel finding is only sustained tachycardia, which I had hoped there would be more common on how the vital signs trended over time, but makes sense to say intentionally vague. Additionally, QRS prolongation and myocardial depression, something to do with gap junctions apparently, are reported, which makes it particularly pernicious in massive overdose. However, to play devil's advocate, in one of the more recent reviews on delayed onset seizures with bupropion, the Opperman et al. paper, all of the patients who had delayed onset seizures greater than 12 hours had altered mental status on arrival. Additionally, among the patients who were sick enough to wind up with cardiac arrest, all had pre-hospital seizures. To have such mild symptoms initially and wind up in cardiac arrest strikes me as atypical. That said, it would be atypical for most ingestions, save things like acetaminophen, methadone, sulfonylurea, certain antimetabolites, and colchicine to have such trivial symptoms initially and to wind up dying from it. Just because I hope you're trying to lead us astray and this is something not necessarily on our radar, I'm going to additionally suggest venlafaxine. This is a notoriously epileptogenic medication that can also cause QRS prolongation. See attached articles, I attached a few articles. <laughs> um, but furthermore, these cases of acute overdose are associated with acute heart failure. Citalopram is one of those serotonergic plus QRS prolongations prolonging plus epileptogenic drugs, but I don't see the patient winding up with refractory heart failure after taking just 30 tabs. Other Hail Mary options with weird and possibly delayed cardiac effects, seizures, and tachycardia, hydroxychloroquine, uh, sodium channel blocking antipsychotic like thyridazine. I've seen a similar constellation of symptoms as well with newer gen sodium channel blocking anticonvulsants, i.e. lamotrigine, but this is usually with gargantuan overdoses and symptoms are quicker. Interesting case. Thanks. Sorry for the long email. Must be a pain to uh, read through and hear people like me bloviate about all these possible guesses. <laughs> that was a fantastic. I really, I sincerely appreciate your bloviations. <laughs> um, that was wonderful. So that, I, I feel like you were in the venlafaxine camp there. You made some fantastic predictions that most people were going to guess bupropion. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up that alternative differential for people where we're probably anchoring a lot in bupropion, but venlafaxine, 
Uh, there's actually a lot of cases of cardiomyopathy from it. I think we don't necessarily know how, but it's presumed to be sort of a Takasubo's type um, uh, pathology. And it certainly could fit. I think there's a lot less research on venlafaxine on when delayed effects occur and how, how far out they are. So uh, it, it seems reasonable. Yeah, I thought about this a lot later on. And, I, you know, I would really have a hard time distinguishing a massive venlafaxine overdose sometimes from a massive bupropion overdose. Um, maybe their responsiveness to bicarb based on mechanism, um, pretty pretty hard to say. Also, I got to go for the the dark horse in this situation. Right. Uh, Fan, FanDuel gave me pretty good odds on this being something other than bupropion. So. <laughs> all right. So for all of the listeners, fantastic guesses and differentials, and we appreciate hearing what you have to say. Toxo, can you go ahead and reveal what the poison is? As many of the listeners astutely guessed, bupropion. Bupropion. So this is a bupropion episode, and everybody really honed in on some important points here. Delayed toxicity, cardiomyopathy as well, uh, requiring ECMO, as well as wide QRS, seizures, pre, uh, prodromal tachycardia, all things that we're going to talk about. But the reason Dr. Philip has joined me today is because his email sparked a fun clinical debate about whether or not this specific patient would have had a seizure 15 hours later based off of their initial presenting symptoms, given what we know about the clinical data on who seizes late. So alongside this episode, we're going to release a mini episode called Who Seizes from Bupropion, where we're going to break down the literature of what sorts of clinical signs and symptoms can key us in on a patient who might be at higher risk for having a seizure and likely warrants further observation. We'll discuss key studies that look at the clinical demographics of patients who seize or experience cardiac arrest and break down some of their limitations as well as strengths. So well, if you're going to listen to this episode, I'd highly recommend you join us on this next episode as well so you can become a little bit more attuned in identifying your high-risk bupropion overdose patients. Thanks, Dr. Philip, for joining this episode, and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for having me. I'll see you soon. Okay, listeners, just you and me again for now. So we are talking about bupropion today, a prescription stimulant antidepressant weight loss agent smoking cessation, seemingly any indication you can imagine. It is becoming widespread throughout the United States and is becoming an increasingly difficult to manage toxin encountering the toxicology world. Some call this the tricyclic antidepressant of our generation. And we're going to discuss all of the unique aspects of this drug that make it difficult to manage. Potential for delayed severe toxicity like seizures. A stimulant that can actually cause cardiac output failure. It can cause wide QRSs that might not respond to sodium bicarbonate due to its mechanism. And it's a stimulant, but there's case reports of it causing brain death mimicry. So many things we need to dive into. Before we do that, we're going to pick our listener winners. And we're going to go with two for this episode. The very first one for stretching out of their comfort zone and jumping into the medical world is going to be Ann Dunlop, who really did a fantastic job identifying the key markers that would indicate this to be bupropion with absolutely no medical training. So good for you, Ann. The next one is David Carroll because he asked for one and he provided the right guess with a great rationale for why. Congrats to our listener winners. Reach out to the show to get your free Poison Lab sticker. Okay, let's dive into the history, toxicity, and medical management of bupropion. Toxo, cue the history segment. 
Poisons in history. Our story actually begins on the East African shores in the 13th century. There was an evergreen shrub there that was called the Kot plant, K-H-A-T. And residents of Ethiopia, East Africa, and Southern Arabia would chew the leaves of this plant for a mild stimulating effect. No one actually knew what the active compound was within this plant, but coffee wasn't going to be invented for another 200 years, so people had to do what they needed to do to get by in the morning. And they would continue to chew this plant without knowing the active ingredient for another 700 years. It wasn't until the 1970s that it was discovered the cot plant contained a structure within it known as a cathinone. That's a substance you heard some of our listeners mention. Sometimes we call these amino ketones. So in the 1970s, they realized that the stimulant effects of this cot plant were actually from the cathinone molecule, something that's very closely related to amphetamine. And as it turns out, a synthetic cathinone had been developed already called mephedrone. You've probably heard of mephedrone before. Or maybe you've heard of an analog of it called alpha-PVP, better known as flocka. A dangerous new synthetic drug called Flaca is taking hold in parts of the U.S. And or, or maybe you haven't heard any of those, but you've heard this. Drugs known as bath salts being blamed for a gruesome scene in Miami. This is a naked man. He was shot dead on Saturday by police because he was gnawing off another man's face. Described to be in a zombie-like state when he was caught by police. Yes, the synthetic versions of the cathinone molecule that's found in the cot plant when structurally modified into things like mephedrone or alpha-PVP or any of the numerous other illicit synthetic cathinones are in the class of drugs we call bath salts. The illicit stimulant drug responsible for seemingly zombie-like outbreaks of altered mental status and the occasional cannibalism attack. They don't sound like a very relaxing bath to me. There's many different synthetic cathinones, but they are all associated with serious sympathomimetic toxicity, acute psychosis, and a whole range of other clinical effects. Okay, so we've been talking about plants and face-eating zombies, but where does bupropion come into play? Well, bupropion is a prescription bath salt. It's a cathinone, the same one found in cot plants and face-eating zombies. Go ahead and open up your browser. Type in bupropion structure, and then in another tab, type in mephedrone structure, or cathinone structure. You don't need to be a medicinal chemist to see the structural homology here. These are both amino ketones, but bupropion is a prescription one. Originally made by the company that would become GlaxoSmithKline in 1969. And about 15 years later, in 1985, it gained FDA approval under the brand named Wellbutrin. Which is why, as some of our listeners have pointed out, it's earned itself a nickname of Illbutrin amongst toxicologists due to its propensity for serious effects. And those serious effects don't always need to be an overdose. Wellbutrin was actually taken off the market one year after it got approval because too many patients were having seizures. It was originally marketed at doses up to 600 milligrams. For anyone familiar with bupropion dosing, you know now the maximum dose is 450 milligrams. That's because the company said, well, all those seizures that it got taken off the market for, those were just in the 600 milligram group. So the FDA let them back in at a lower dose. And this seemed to do the trick. 
Use of Wellbutrin was, well, booming. It was really cutting a niche as an antidepressant that didn't cause weight gain and didn't impact sexual function, something that was actually a big problem with many of the SSRIs. Its prescribing proliferated profusely, gaining new indications like smoking cessation and new formulations like SR and XL products. In fact, the plethora of sustained release and extended release products causes one of the biggest conundrums in managing bupropion overdose. The fact that many of the seizures that occur can be delayed depending on what type of product they took. That's going to be covered later. Either way, bupropion seemed to be having quite a heyday in the market, being used for both approved indications and not so approved. GlaxoSmithKline in 2012 actually had a $3 billion lawsuit put on them for inappropriately marketing the drug under the table as a sexual stimulant and weight loss agent. But that was just a minor setback for them. We are now seeing more bupropion than ever. It was recently FDA approved in the combination drug Contrave that's used for weight loss. And the new most terrifying combination of drugs I have ever heard of, Avelity, a combination of bupropion and dextromethorphan. Wow, I assume that drug was brought to market so toxicologists could finally answer the question. Can you watch yourself have a seizure from the fourth plateau of robo-tripping? Well, I'm sure it'll be a useful drug for some people, but I know I'm certainly worried about the first case of overdose that I will need to manage. And of course, it's not just prescription use we're running into. People who know about the stimulant properties of cathinones will smoke, snort, or inject bupropion to get a stimulant-like high. Recently, I had the opportunity to take part in a very exciting project. It's called the America's Poison Center's Annual Report where we analyze poison center calls all throughout the nation and look for emerging trends. One of the noted trends was that when you looked at the entire class of antidepressants, that's all the tricyclic antidepressants, all the SSRIs, SNRIs, lithium, and bupropion, bupropion alone was responsible for the highest incidence of major life-threatening effects from overdose higher than the entire class of SSRIs or TCAs. This means if you're treating someone in the hospital for serious medical effects related to an antidepressant overdose, statistically, you're most likely treating a bupropion. If you want more information on that, check out the America's Poison Center's annual report. But this is why it's so important that we educate people about this drug, its risks, and how to deal with its toxicity. I think that brings us up to speed on the current landscape. But what about it actually makes the management so much more difficult than other substances? Toxo, can you throw on some lo-fi? Because I think we have some toxic mechanisms to discuss. Toxo's frosty lo-fi beats coming right up. Bupropion was originally marketed as an antidepressant. Many people know of the antidepressant class selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Well, bupropion is what we call a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor. When your nerves are talking to each other, they release neurotransmitters like dopamine and norepinephrine into the place where nerves meet each other, called a synapse. But once those neurotransmitters are there, they need to leave. Usually, they'll get metabolized or they will get reuptaken into the cell so they can be recycled. What bupropion does is block the channels that allow for the reuptake of dopamine and norepinephrine, allowing them to exist within the synapse longer continuing to interact with receptors and increasing the dopaminergic and norepinephric tone within the nervous system. We know this because when you give rats bupropion and measure their blood, we see higher levels of norepinephrine and dopamine in there. 
And in those rats, we actually see decreased firing of their dopaminergic and norepinephrinergic neurons. That might seem a bit counterintuitive, but it's because we already have so much norepi and dopamine in the synapse, those nerves don't feel like they need to fire. So we increase dopamine and norepinephrine. These are sympathetic neurotransmitters. Sympathetic, like I have sympathy for you because you're being chased by a bear. These are our fight or flight neurotransmitters, if that's the paradigm you choose to adhere to, and they increase our body's ability to deal with stressful situations where we need to fight or get out of there. If you were gonna fight a bear, you'd probably wanna get pretty aggressive, pretty agitated to scare that bear away from you so you can survive and pass off this trait to another generation. You're probably gonna sweat a little bit so that you can deal with the excess heat generated from bear fighting. Your heart rate is gonna go up so that you can send oxygenated blood to your muscles to tear those bear jaws in half. So that's what we see in overdose, the sympathetic toxicodrome. Hot, tacky, crazy. And sometimes so crazy you have a seizure because there's excessive sympathetic neurotransmission going on within the central nervous system. That's not all that exciting. Most of us can handle an agitated, sweaty, tacky patient with a boatload of benzos. What's really terrifying is the effects that bupropion has on the cardiac cellular structure. Bupropion is what we call a connexin poison. Connexins are proteins that your heart uses to make a certain channel called a gap junction. What is this gap junction, you may ask? Well, that's a good question. And I think I have just the person to explain it to you, Dr. Travis Olives. He just gave a presentation at the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology on bupropion's effects on gap junctions. And he's graciously agreed to join the show to explain just how bupropion interferes with cardiac conduction. So, Dr. Olives, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my, my name is Travis Olives. I am the Associate Medical Director for the Minnesota Poison Control System and a faculty emergency physician and toxicologist at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, Dr. Olives, can you help us understand what a connexin is? Yeah, I, I certainly can. And just to be clear, this isn't a part of my everyday language. Uh, however, it turns out that in the heart, we have lots of cellular communication mechanisms, one of which we talk about all the time. It's the sodium channel. And it turns out at a cellular level, there are different ways of communicating, one of which is the gap junction. And at the gap junction, which is this space in between two cardiac myocytes, there are these nice little channels that are called connexons. And each one in the human body is made up of, in the human uh, cardiac myocyte is made up of six substructures that are called connexons. And those connexins make up this superstructure that allows for um, communication uh, intercellularly. Now, we're not talking about intracellular communication, but intercellular communication. Uh, stick with me here for a second. So you have an isolated cardiac myocyte, and it is part of this really cool synchronized contractility of the heart, which we often think about in a linear fashion with depolarization going along. What we see is this surface EKG. In reality, though, we're talking about a very three-dimensional activity that causes a three-dimensional contraction of the heart. So every one of those myocytes is in contact on average with about 11 or so other cells. And gap junctions are what make that intercellular communication possible in large part. Okay, so these are really important in transferring signals between cells. What happens when we inhibit the ability of a gap junction? When that is disrupted, you can have the same uh, challenges in uh, depolarization across a big myocardium that you would see if you had uh, sodium channel antagonism. And the end result of the gap junction dysfunction by way of the connexons 
is a widening of that QRS on your surface electrocardiogram. Okay, so as we're going to talk about soon, and as most people probably know, bupropion causes wide QRS complex arrhythmias. And we're saying now that it's maybe not from the normal way we see those in toxicology, the sodium channel block. It's a gap junction. How do we know that bupropion actually targets gap junctions and not sodium channels? There have been really nice uh, in vitro studies looking at patch clamp evaluation of bupropion's effect. It turns out that Kalier and colleagues in, in 2012, in a great paper, demonstrated that even though the QRS widens on the surface electrocardiogram, there isn't actually a significant inhibitory effect of bupropion at the sodium channel, uh, regardless of the concentration study. It's not a sodium channel blocker as we initially thought. Really fascinating. So we're seeing wide complex QRS on an EKG, but not due to our normal tox-induced sodium channel blockade. But we know that this means there is some form of disordered depolarization going through the ventricle or something delaying that synchronous depolarization. And we talk about the, uh, the signals being transferred along the cell membrane, and we think about our sodium channels working at the surface level electrocardiogram. Uh, to widen out that QRS when they're antagonized. And that's the way that we are all taught at one point or another over the course of our education. It turns out, though, the really tough thing about that is that it's not just sodium channels that can um, cause that QRS widening. Um, and there's some really good work out there, in particular by uh, St uh, Stephen Rohrer and colleagues. And what they did is they, they've looked at what happens when you have a decrease in your cell-to-cell -cell activation. And when you have gap junction antagonists in place, the end result is that there is a remarkable slowing in cell-to-cell -cell activation uh, in a sheet of cardiac myocytes. And you go from about 36 centimeters per second in control cells to about 0.3 centimeters per second in gap junction uncoupled cells. So there is this really, really interesting in vitro data out there demonstrating that when you inhibit gap junctions or uncouple them, there is remarkable slowing in cell-to-cell -cell activation that results in a very atypical um, depolarization that's not very functional, which frankly is what we see in bupropion poisoning. And so we see these electrocardiograms that look for all the world like a typical sodium channel blocker. But for bupropion, that's just not the case. Absolutely fascinating. We have data that bupropion does not block sodium currents, and we have evidence that gap junction uncoupling or inhibition can lead to a similar disordered depolarization, which would manifest as the same clinical findings on an ECG, leading us to believe that bupropion likely inhibits cardiac conduction via gap junction uncoupling. Thank you so much, Dr. Olives, for sharing this information with us. It is my pleasure, and we didn't even get the chance to talk about the potassium channel antagonism, but I'll send you these, uh, these papers, and uh, you do with them what you see fit. I will be putting all of those papers in the show notes. If you want quick access to this conversation and slightly more in-depth discussion about whether bupropion actually affects connection 43 or just interferes with gap junctions in a different way based off some of the benchtop analytical data, check out the mini episode that we released right alongside this one called Bridging the Gap, the Effects of Bupropion on the Cardiac Action Potential with our guest, Dr. Olives. Now, for those where this might have been too much science, I'm going to break it down a little simpler. I'll try to give you an analogy you might be able to share with, say, a high school class. But if you feel like you got it covered, skip ahead about four minutes. For everyone else, let's get the lo-fi going again. Think of your heart like a big hotel, and your individual heart cells are the hotel rooms. Now, 
Let's say you need to deliver something to all the hotel rooms, like uh, maybe a pizza or a depolarizing wave of ions, your choice. Well, you have the front door that things can be delivered through. That's the sodium channel. But then you also have adjoining hotel room doors that you totally ask your mom to get for you and your friends for your 14th birthday so that everybody can hang out between... Oh, sorry, this is derailing. You have the adjoining hotel room doors that you can deliver anything you get from the front door to the other rooms around you. Those are the gap junctions. And now imagine that your heart cell hotel is not just surrounded on either side, but all four sides, as well as a room above it and below it that are all connected by these gap junction hotel room doors. Remember, depolarization is three-dimensional. If you only depolarize one cell and can't share that charge with anyone else, you're going to die. So normally, when you deliver that pizza to the hotel room, it can then deliver it to all the other hotel rooms around it, when the gap junctions are working properly. However, bupropion seems to lock those adjoining hotel room doors. Suddenly, you deliver a pizza to your room and you need to get it to all of your friends, but these doors are locked. The only way to now get that pizza to your friends is to go outside, maybe even take an elevator down a floor, walk down the hallway and give it to the room right below you. A lot less efficient than driving it through your pretty sweet hotel room handoff window that you have in your floor, I guess. Okay, this is getting a little hairy. You get the idea. This is a way less efficient process to deliver a shared good that all of these cells need. Gap junctions are what makes the cell able to effectively deliver a depolarizing wave to all cells. It is the efficiency in the process. And when we block this, depolarization becomes inefficient and the charge delivery becomes erratic. This leads to delayed depolarization. So when we measure depolarization of the ventricle on an EKG, the QRS complex, which represents ventricular depolarization, starts to appear widened due to this erratic depolarization. Although it's not widened for the usual tox reasons, which are sodium channel blockade. That's where you kind of put a heavy wedge in front of the hotel room door and it's really hard to push open, making things slower. In this case, the hotel room door flies open widely, but you can't deliver your charge to all the other rooms. But they both result in the same clinical effect that we can see on an ECG, a wide QRS. This can have some serious implications in treatment. We don't really have an answer to gap junction poisons, and that makes this very difficult to treat. We'll talk just a little bit more about that in the clinical effects section. But let's leave it here for now. If this was the level of physiologic complexity you prefer and you want to know more about why heart cells are negatively charged, what the purposes of depolarization in the first place, check out the mini episode, The Saga of the Cardiac Action Potential, which was released right after episode four. Let's try to tie this all together into something you can use, the clinical effects. Now, I'm going to be talking about some of the scarier effects a bupropion overdose can cause. But remember, the effects a patient will experience are completely dependent on the exposure scenario. If I have a young kid who took one tablet of a medicine, they're much less likely to have the same effects as an adolescent or adult who took 30 tablets of a medicine or snorted or injected a medicine. And there's actually data to support that with bupropion. I can throw a link to the study in the show notes. This is actually one of the hardest things in toxicology, figuring out exactly how much somebody needed to take before I'm going to see some nasty effects. And it's rarely cut and dry. But as with all poisoning, 
your likelihood of having a bad outcome really increases as your dose goes up. And we're going to be talking about some of the more extreme outcomes in overdose. Ryan, stop blabbing and get to the clinical effects, please. Look, Toxo, data without context is dangerous, so we're just taking our precautions. Okay, the common effects that we see from bupropion are a sympathetic toxidrome, and this can have a range of severity. More mild symptoms might just be tachycardia with insomnia or restlessness, but these can progress to being hot, tacky, crazy, diaphoretic, agitated, hallucinating with tremor, and the more severe consequence of seizure, arrhythmia, and cardiogenic shock. We're going to come back to seizure, but I want to talk first about the severe cardiac arrhythmia effects. We didn't go too in-depth on this, but bupropion does block potassium channels and will prolong your QTC and put you at risk for torsades. Though there are other arrhythmias we still have to worry about, such as wide complex tachycardias. In the case of bupropion, probably from gap junction blockade. The other severe cardiac complication of bupropion is cardiogenic shock. Kind of weird from a sympathetic toxidrome, right? But we do have other substances that are sympathetic and can cause cardiac output failure, like venlafaxine, which was brought up by a number of listeners and our guest Ari Phillip earlier in the show. Cardiogenic shock certainly isn't going to be in every case of bupropion overdose. In fact, a cursory search of PubMed shows only seven published case reports. It appears to generally occur early and is associated with the extremis of disease like a seizure or cardiac arrest. And many of the cases demonstrate complete recovery of cardiac function within two to four days. Exactly why it occurs isn't well understood. You know, maybe it's a Takasubo's cardiomyopathy like some other sympathetic toxidromes can cause. But if we think about bupropion through the lens of its gap junction effects it actually makes sense that it could potentially cause a cardiogenic shock. Here's Dr. Olives on that. One study uh, that I find fascinating by Vink and colleagues, uh, I think it's from somewhere in the neighborhood of the early 2000s, I can't recall when. Regardless, it turns out that in that particular paper um, uh, that analyzed, I think it was mouse cardiac myocytes that were either wild-type connexin-43 or knockout connexin-43s, um, there was a, a, a measurable difference in transfer of, um, of dye, in this case, across uh, gap junctions in the knockout versus the wild type uh, models. And, it, and really what you look at is that when those are absent, and remember, connexin 43 is one of the ones that we think that bupropion actually impacts, uh, what you see is very irregular contractility uh, in the myocytes that are knockouts compared to the ones that have very nice regular contractility. Uh, in the cardiac myocytes that are not knockouts, that are the wild type. The entire purpose of depolarization is excitation-contraction coupling. If you interfere with synchronous depolarization, you interfere with synchronous contraction. And thus, you might have low output. We don't know the exact cause. But there are a number of case reports of relatively young, healthy patients developing ejection fractions as low as 10%, despite maximal inotropic support. So if you're dealing with refractory hypotension in bupropion overdose, it might be time to get an echo and check out your cardiac output. Long before your severe cardiac manifestations develop, we're probably going to be seeing neurologic symptoms as our canary in the coal mine. The one bad side effect we worry about is seizures. These are dose-dependent, but they occur in up to 30% of bupropion overdoses. Hey, this is why bupropion was taken off the market in the first place. And here's the real neurologic symptom, the headache it causes me in trying to figure out when a patient is going to have a seizure. 
Due to the varying products that are out there, immediate release, sustained release, and extended release, there are a lot of differences in when symptoms develop. With the extended and sustained release products, there's data to show seizures occurring 24 hours out. There's case series where 25% of the seizures occur after 8 hours and many occurring after 12. Ryan, please stop shouting numbers at the audience. Right, right. Sorry. Look, because of the various extended release products, seizures can occur very late in bupropion overdose. So this is one of the few toxic time bombs where a patient can present looking relatively asymptomatic and later decompensate and have catastrophic events. And when you have an asymptomatic person sitting in front of you, it's very hard to figure out who's going to seize in 24 hours versus six versus none. Now, we do have some data that helps us figure out who's higher risk. Usually, these seizures have some prodromal symptoms. I'm going to summarize them here, but if you actually want to look at the five key articles that help us determine who's going to have a seizure, go check out the mini episode with Dr. Ari Phillip, where we really dive in. But the long and short is that tachycardia is a strong predictor of seizures. Tachycardia occurring at any time. Tachycardia for greater than two hours. Tachycardia greater than 120 or 140 has all been shown to increase your risk for seizures. All this makes sense. The more sympathetic stimulation going on, the more likely you are to seize. Neuropsychiatric symptoms like tremor and agitation have also been found to be associated with seizure. And that makes sense too. If you're so sympathetic, you're shaking already, you're not that far off from having a seizure. Finally, a number of other risk factors like QTC prolongation and hypotension, which just tell us, hey, you probably have a lot of drug in your system, have also been associated with seizures. If you want to know more, check out the mini-episode to understand the strengths and limitations of these predictors. In summary, if you have a tachycardic, agitated, or tremulous patient in front of you, that should not be dismissed as situational anxiety. And just recognize, these people can have a seizure a day after their discharge. So I really hope you talked about their observation time with the toxicologist before sending them home. Now, the very last clinical effect I want to talk about is bupropion as a brain death mimic. That's when the effects of a drug make your brainstem reflexes appear absent, and thus you appear to be brain dead to everyone who's taking care of you, which, if that team isn't aware of this possibility, they might withdraw life support, despite the fact that you have the potential to live out the rest of your life if you just make it through the intoxication. Now, many drugs are known to do this. A lot of them are sedative-type drugs, like baclofen or barbiturates. There's also case reports of tricyclic antidepressants, sodium channel blockers. There's really quite a few. However, stimulants aren't usually what we think of when we think of brain-death mimic intoxications. Yet, here we have bupropion, a stimulant drug that has a number of case reports of causing absent brainstem reflexes that mimics brain death. Don't just take it from me. Let's hear from an author of one of those case reports. Critical care neurologist, Dr. Rainier Reyes. My name is Rainier Reyes. I'm one of the assistant professors here in the Department of Neurology and Division of Neurocritical Care at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I reached out to Dr. Reyes due to his publication of the case report bupropion overdose as a clinically significant confounder of the neurological examination. Dr. Reyes, would you mind sharing a summary of the bupropion overdose that you were involved in managing and published? Yeah, absolutely. So in brief, we had the opportunity to take care of a young patient who's 31 years old. Uh, he had a history of depression and anxiety. 
He was initially brought to the emergency department with an acute intoxication um, after a presumed suicide attempt. There were multiple substances involved. Uh, there was mirtazapine, oxcarbazepine, phloxetine, bupropion, of course, um, a few others such as copapentin, hydroxazine. When he hit the ED door, he was fairly normal, just a little bit encephalopathic. Vital signs were, for the most part, pretty unremarkable. Shortly after his, his admission, just a few hours into his hospital course, he progressed to developing a cardiac arrest. It was a PA arrest, and there were actually two of them. Two arrests were 14 and, and 16 minutes or so. Immediately after the arrest, a neurological exam was performed, and at that time, he had all brainstem reflexes absent, including his pupils. They're fairly dilated. Um, but everything else was gone to corneals, you name it, no motor response to pain. Now, of course, that's this is immediately after the arrest. And so after that, the decision was made to kind of treat him with targeted temperature management for, of course, the, the reasons of the arrest. A couple of days into this course, you know, we got a repeat CAT scan, which showed some mild but subtle changes consistent with a, a mild anoxic brain injury, but for the most part, it wasn't, wasn't terrible. Um, so we were asked to not only consult on prognostication, but with the idea of, you know, this patient has no brainstem reflexes, can we and should we proceed with brain death testing and things like that? Ultimately, you know, we as a neurologist felt like that was not going to be the best idea because one, you know, in addition to the substance that was still, we thought was, was maybe still on board given the half-life, uh, we also recognized that he, he had been cooled with TTM. And so obviously metabolism slows down there. And he was also undergoing CRT for obviously renal injury. So we thought there were too many confounders to be to be accurate in terms of diagnosing brain death or even evaluating or considering him for brain death. Um, we also did not offer anything strict in terms of prognostication. Um, the most we could offer the family was, was the fact that he had an anoxic brain injury and, and he likely had some degree of injury, but to what extent was really, really unclear. And so patient actually, uh, you know, family was leaning towards, you know, comfort care measures only. Um, but after a few days, he suddenly and surprisingly uh, regained bilateral corneal reflexes and pupil reflexes. Those are the first to kind of show back up. A few days after that, he was actually talking to us and following commands without difficulty. Wow. Yeah, pretty incredible. And then he continued to improve throughout the rest of his hospital course. He was in the hospital for a total of about three weeks. By discharge, he was completely normal from a neurological perspective and, and overall. We actually had him undergo some neuropsych testing and showed no evidence of cognitive impairment. So he was discharged shortly after that. Very impressive. And now is living out the rest of his life, I would assume. So a really fascinating case. The presumption here is that the cardiac arrest may have led to a hypoxic event that had catastrophic brain injury, and that is why they needed brain death tests. And you said, let's defer that. What prompted you to defer? Was it the fact that it was a drug ingestion that led to the initial arrest, or was it the specific drug, or just any drug overall? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think there are probably two parts to it. One, and first and foremost, is certainly the, the drug ingestion. Um, um, specifically, Bupropion, but all those all those medications. The majority of those medications have quite lengthy half lives, especially you know the psychotropic medications there, and so that was definitely a, a confounder. Now, our neurology guidelines and brain death testing guidelines um, state that you have to wait at least five half lives before you even consider someone for for brain death testing. But that's under the assumption that you have normal renal and hepatic function, and which this gentleman did not. 
And then also, as I mentioned, the half-lives were quite long. So first and foremost, the fact that he had an intoxication and he arrested, you know, this was within 12 hours of his admission, it much too soon really to, to, to think about this. And then secondly, is the fact that he did have the arrest and his exam was, was like this immediately after the arrest. Whenever we prognosticate patients um, after cardiac arrest, you know, our, our guidelines and our literature has shown that prognostication after cardiac arrest, even outside of an intoxication, if you do it too soon, it, you tend to be very, very inaccurate. And so that combination of, of things, of factors really made us kind of pause and, and with caution and, and really recommend holding off on that testing. I think you bring up some great points here. These drugs all have long half-lives in therapeutic dosing. In overdose, there's well-documented evidence that half-lives prolong, as well as the fact that once you have renal and hepatic failure, you're going to prolong even more. And I think it's so interesting that you bring up that targeted temperature management may have an impact on also increasing half-life because you know, you're slowing down its metabolism. So that's a really great point to bring up. I appreciate that. And any final takeaways or anything you'd like to share? Bupropion seems to be one of the more surprising agents in this category of, of you know, medications that can mimic brain death. And so it's super important to, to make people aware about it. And, and really, you know, cases like this, if you jump the gun, I think in general, in critical care and also in neurology, I think we're learning more and more that, you know, jumping the gun tends to do you no good and does much more harm. And we're learning that giving people more time, things like that. And we're getting, we're getting surprised as to how much better people can get by just you know, giving them time, even outside of intoxications, right? Just in, in brain injuries. And so the idea of brain death is relatively controversial to begin with for various reasons. A lot of that has to do with some sensationalism and things like that. But cases like this and situations in which you might jump the gun a little bit too early, they only serve to you know, stir up the pot and controversy a little bit more. So certainly definitely have to be aware of these kinds of issues. Well, thank you for joining and giving us your time to the show. I appreciate it, Dr. Reyes. Of course. Thanks for the opportunity. You'll be able to find Dr. Reyes's case report in the show notes, or you can find it in the notes of the entire mini episode we're doing dedicated to bupropion brain death mimicry. So if you want to hear more from Dr. Reyes or other authors of cases where bupropion has led to catastrophic events and absent brainstem reflexes and considerations for withdrawing care, all for the patient to wake up with full neurologic recovery, check that episode out. It might not be available right when this one is released, but it's coming very soon. For now, those of you taking care of bupropion overdoses, just remember, the brain death testing guidelines recommend doing testing with an irreversible cause of brain death. And drug overdoses are not that. So in the absence of, say, imaging showing devastating neurologic injury, we need to remember many case reports exist of these patients waking up and having full neurologic recovery a few days later after the intoxication has worn off. All right, I think that'll wrap it up for clinical effects. Let's talk about treatment. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of great options. When it comes to decontamination, activated charcoal and whole bowel irrigation may play a pretty significant role in managing this overdose, especially due to the fact that there's extended release and sustained release products. Given the lack of viable treatment options and the potential for serious complications as well as delayed absorption, many toxicologists are far more aggressive with bowel decontamination when it comes to bupropion than maybe other substances. There is hardly a consensus on how and when to decontaminate these patients. 
other than anyone presenting within an hour of ingestion of bupropion can get activated charcoal, assuming their mental status is appropriate enough to protect their own airway, or they're intubated and have an OG, then go ahead. Now, one hour is from the consensus guidelines, but the guidelines themselves say there may be a benefit beyond that for certain substances. And if your patient is outside the window for activated charcoal and they took enough bupropion to scare you, whole bowel irrigation is certainly a consideration. If you don't know how much bupropion should scare you, then you should call a poison center or toxicologist to figure out if this is warranted. In terms of supportive cares, this is your standard ABCs. Support airway, breathing, and circulation. If they're seizing so much they can't protect their airway, they're going to get intubated. If you have a prolonged QTC, you can certainly try giving some magnesium to prevent decompensation into torsades. If you need to know what torsades is or how magnesium works, check out the mini episode called Early After Depolarizations and Mechanisms of Torsades that was put out after episode four. Now, what if we're seeing a wide QRS complex on the ECG? The thing that usually means they're either in VTAC or their ventricular depolarization is being slowed by a toxin, usually slowed by a sodium channel blocker. Well, this is where we would normally reach for sodium bicarbonate. But if you've been listening along to the discussions we've been having, you should be saying, hey, wait, Ryan, we just said that bupropion is a gap junction poison. It actually doesn't affect the sodium channels. And, and sodium bicarbonate works on the blocked sodium channel. So is there a role for sodium bicarbonate in patients who have blocked gap junctions as the cause of their wide QRS? Well, firstly, listener, I would say very astute of you. And there are, in fact, cases of wide complex tachycardias from bupropion overdose being refractory to sodium bicarbonate. But there's also cases where it has worked, despite what we think we know about bupropion's mechanism. So I'm I'm not sure it's time to throw this standard of care treatment out with the bathwater. But I asked Dr. Travis Olives this as well, and here's what he had to say. So what I hear you saying, Ryan, is that occasionally we see sodium bicarbonate actually narrowing the QRS in cases that are reported as bupropion poisoning. And I, I hear you. Uh, they're published in the literature. There's plenty of them. Um, my personal practice is, frankly, to assume that there's more to the story than I know and to assume that there is sodium channel antagonism until I know otherwise. I think it's an important tool, especially in the undifferentiated patient who may or may not have had bupropion on their list. Uh, common things are common, and sodium channel antagonism in toxicology is as common as just about anything. And so I tend to treat upfront empirically, assuming that they're not wildly hypokalemic, for example, and so on, uh, as, um, uh, as if there is some sodium channel antagonism. Uh, however, it turns out that it's even more complicated in the case of bupropion. And the reason that it's more complicated is that there are different concentrations of membrane-bound uh, sodium channels around gap junctions than there are in other parts of the cardiac myocyte. I do think that there's probably something to that. We just don't quite understand. And so I personally think that there's more to the story that we just have not elucidated yet. When you look at the superstructure of the cell membrane around where the gap junction that houses this, these connexons and connexins exist. So you should try sodium bicarbonate, but it might not work. And in a patient in severe refractory malignant arrhythmia, they might need other therapies, including things like ECMO. ECMO might be needed anyways if the patient is in severe refractory cardiogenic shock, another complication we can see with bupropion overdose. 
In these patients with severe cardiovascular consequences, such as cardiogenic shock requiring pressors or arrhythmia or peri-arrest, you might consider a dose of IV fat emulsion. This has been suggested and seen in case reports as a potential adjunct therapy, but the evidence is just that, case reports. I find this is generally only reached for in a patient in the peri-arrest or active arrest state. Basically, if you have a patient who's declining, maybe having multiple seizures and was intubated, you should probably be consulting with an ECMO-capable center to ensure that the patient at least has that as a treatment option for the extremis of their disease. In terms of managing their seizures, this is when we're going to reach for our benzodiazepines and our GABAergic antiepileptics. Benzos, 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 followed by intubation and propofol or phenobarbital to manage the seizures. There's not a huge role for non-GABA-based antiepileptics. There's actually a recent trial published about this that I'd love to share with you, but I'll put it in the show notes to keep this episode a little bit shorter. And then after intubation, we run into another problem. What do we do when your patient is intubated, has an EEG that's showing burst suppression, has no other imaging that shows devastating neurologic injury, but is not following any commands when they're off sedation. And there's whisperings of brain death testing. What do we do with the potential brain death patient? I think we really need to be cognizant of the fact that bupropion can be a brain death mimic. And as we know, drugs interfere with the ability to perform brain death reflex testing. So if there's a potential for the drug to still be in the system of the patient, brain death testing should be deferred. If you're not sure if the drug could still be around, you should probably be talking to your toxicology team or a poison center because many factors in overdose increase the half-life of a drug. Saturation of enzymes, inadequate organ function, continued absorption. There's many reasons why your half-life will be much longer than what's reported at therapeutic doses. And there may be a number of instances where it's worthwhile to try to send confirmatory concentrations of bupropion and hydroxybupropion or any of the other drugs the patient may have been exposed to to confirm that the drug is out of the system and not interfering with your brain death exam. And many of these cases may benefit from ancillary testing like cerebral blood flow perfusion scans. You can read the 2017 ACMT Brain Death determination in adults with overdose position statement to get a better idea of what I'm talking about here. But these patients are at risk of pulling the plug too early when they still have a viable chance at living out the rest of their life. And conversations regarding withdrawal of care and brain death should likely happen in conjunction with both toxicology and neurology. Okay, so you've managed their bowel You've supported their breathing, treated their seizure, ECMO'd them through their arrhythmia and cardiogenic shock, sent off confirmatory bupropion levels so you can increase your confidence in your brain death testing, and deferred your brain death testing because you know it might be confounded. Is there any way I can enhance the elimination of this compound? Unfortunately, bupropion is highly protein-bound to albumin, which makes it less likely to be amenable to dialysis, at least at therapeutic levels. Additionally, it has some metabolites that are active, and we're not sure how well those are bound. However, nobody really knows how well protein-bound bupropion is in overdose. So it's possible there's a significant amount of free drug floating around, but there's never been any case studies of dialyzing the free unbound bupropion off. 
So unfortunately, there don't seem to be a lot of well-characterized enhanced elimination strategies. Plasmapheresis, where you replace a patient's plasma volume, including their proteins, has sometimes been used in other therapies like MARS, but there's not a lot of strong evidence, and I'm not sure it's worth diving into here. So that takes me to our final treatment part. We've talked about ABCs, D for decontamination, E for enhanced elimination, and F for focused antidotes, of which there are none. You could say we've talked about We haven't talked about G. Get help from a toxicologist. There are so many places where you can fall into a bupropion trap here. And bupropion's natural tendency to be a toxic time bomb means we need someone who has experience in managing these overdoses when one presents. Please reach out to a poison center or toxicologist for help in managing this unusual and difficult to treat toxin. Don't forget, you can reach a toxicologist 24-7 at 1-800-222-1222 for anyone in the United States. Okay, let's take this to our case. We had a 15-year-old female who took a bunch of their friend's medicines in a self-harm attempt and showed up within an hour of ingestion. They had tachycardia and some anxiety in the emergency department, likely from excess norepinephrine and dopamine in the synapse due to bupropion's effects. Of course, we don't know this is bupropion yet, but... We'll figure it out when she has a very delayed seizure. We know she's at higher risk than your average bear for a delayed seizure because she's had tachycardia. Having that at all puts you at risk for it. Sustained tachycardia, as well as higher rates of tachycardia, portend to worse outcomes. She gets discharged after six hours. I assume nobody called a toxicologist. Goes to the psych facility where she develops neuropsychiatric symptoms. Couple that with her tachycardia, and now we are really looking at a high-risk patient for having a severe consequence. Because she's in an unmonitored psychiatric facility, she ends up having an out-of-hospital seizure and repeatedly seizes on the way to the emergency department, eventually developing cardiac arrest. The patient eventually achieves return of spontaneous circulation. Her QRS on her post-arrest EKG is wide, likely from blockade of gap junctions. Sodium bicarbonate can be given here, and should be, but we need to be prepared for it not to work. In this case, the patient ended up getting the definitive therapy anyways. It was determined that her cardiac output and ejection fraction were significantly reduced. She was in cardiogenic shock, either from connexin poisoning, reducing the ability of the heart to contract in synchrony, or potentially from a Takasubo's stress cardiomyopathy type pathophysiology. Either way, she was refractory to vasopressors, had a wide complex QRS and tachycardia, and required ECMO in order to be supported through the cardiovascular collapse she was experiencing. This patient remained intubated and sedated with continuous EEG monitoring for her seizures, with propofol, benzodiazepines, and barbiturates being used to reduce epileptiform discharges on the EEG. She was given a dose of intralipid for cardiovascular collapse to bridge her for cannulation for ECMO, where she remained on ECMO as well as inotropes and vasopressors for her cardiovascular collapse. She was treated with multiple boluses of sodium bicarbonate for wide complex QRSs with indeterminate results. Unfortunately, on hospital day six, the patient developed compartment syndrome, her ECMO cannulation failed, and she experienced a cardiac arrest off ECMO for which they were unable to achieve ROSC. A sad story, but one that highlights 
the importance of understanding the many nuances of bupropion overdose, its propensity for delayed effects, the risk of patients being discharged too early, its refractoriness to standard therapies, and unique clinical effects for its class of drugs, such as brain death mimic and cardiac output failure. Or if that story is too sad for you, just imagine that they decannulated ECMO and she woke up. This is an amalgam of patients based off of a number of different case reports, and not a real patient. But everything that happened in this case has happened to a bupropion overdose somewhere, including many of the patients that I have encountered. So with that in mind, let's review everything we learned today. Bupropion is a prescription drug that is gaining widespread prevalence throughout the United States, and thus the incidence of overdose is also increasing. And unfortunately, bupropion overdoses tend to have more severe outcomes than other classes of antidepressants. The America's Poison Center's annual report for 2021 compared bupropion to all other antidepressants, compared to whole classes of SSRIs, SNRIs, lithium TCAs, Bupropion, as its own class, is the most common cause of a serious or life-threatening effect in overdose, which means if you are treating a patient in a hospital with a serious problem occurring from an antidepressant, it's most likely going to be bupropion. Bupropion itself is an aminoketone stimulant in the class of substances called cathinones, the same substances that the cot plant and bath salt stimulants reside in. When taken in overdose, bupropion leads to a sympathomimetic toxidrome, which can manifest as agitation, restlessness, tachycardia, and in severe cases, seizures and cardiovascular collapse from both arrhythmia and cardiogenic shock. Complicating the management of bupropion is the fact that the multiple extended and sustained release products can cause delayed effects. Bupropion is a toxic time bomb, where you might appear initially stable, but then decompensate up to 24 hours later. And it's not uncommon for seizures to occur after 8 or even 12 hours, depending on whether a sustained release or extended release product was ingested. It's very difficult to predict who will experience these severe delayed effects. A number of studies support that Patients with tachycardia are far more likely to have seizures. Patients with neuropsychiatric symptoms like tremor or agitation are in the high-risk group as well. So your tachycardic anxious bupropion overdose should not have their symptoms dismissed or be sent home since they are still at high risk of seizing. And while the absence of tachycardia has a decent negative predictive value for patients not developing seizures, tachycardia can be masked by co-ingestions like alpha-2 agonists. So you really can't hedge too many of your bets on it. You should consult with a poison center or toxicologist to determine an appropriate observation time for a patient to rule out the potential for serious delayed symptoms. Other clinical conundrums that occur in managing bupropion are the fact that its cardiotoxicity is somewhat unique in that it can block gap junctions and doesn't necessarily affect sodium channels. Blocking gap junctions leads to disordered depolarization, which looks like a wide complex QRS on an EKG, but it's not your typical tox wide QRS, which is from sodium channel blockade. You should still give sodium bicarbonate or other hypertonic sodium to try to narrow the QRS, but we have to be prepared for it to be refractory, and patients in malignant unbreakable arrhythmias may require things like ECMO. Unfortunately, refractory arrhythmia is not the only problem. We can also see refractory cardiogenic shock, potentially from bupropion's effects on the gap junction. Cardiogenic shock can be managed with standard vasopressors and inotropes, but mechanical circulatory support may be needed. 
If you have a patient who's showing life-threatening signs of toxicity, is peri-arrest, or maybe in a refractory arrhythmia, IV fat emulsion has been used in a number of case reports. And it may help or at least be a bridge to more definitive therapies like ECMO. If you have a decompensating patient, you may want to have the conversation with your ECMO team earlier than later as to whether or not the patient would be a good candidate. Or start looking for ECMO-capable centers to transfer the patient to so this therapy would be available to them if they need it. Finally, in patients who are adequately supported for airway, breathing, and circulation with all the definitive supportive cares but are not showing any neurologic activity and there's concern for brain death, we need to recognize that there are a number of cases from bupropion overdose with patients who have absent brain death reflexes and EEGs that show burst suppression that later go on to wake up and have full neurologic recovery. It appears bupropion can be a brain death mimic, highlighting the importance of trying to get analytical confirmation that the drug is no longer present in the patient's system before brain death reflex testing is performed. More about that can be found in the 2017 ACMT guidance and position statement for brain death testing in patients with drug overdose. Lastly, due to the possibility of severe and difficult to manage consequences from overdose, some toxicologists are very aggressive with their gastric decontamination. There might be a role for whole bowel irrigation as well as activated charcoal, even later than normal poisonings, due to the fact that many products are extended release. Just another reason why you should contact a toxicologist early. In fact, due to the many nuances in managing this overdose, a toxicologist really should be consulted as soon as you have identified bupropion as your substance. They can be reached 24-7 at 1-800-222-1222 if you don't have your own inpatient toxicology consult service. I think with that, we're going to wrap up the show. This has been an immensely important topic, and I really appreciate you listening along. If you haven't seen Bupropion yet, you're going to. And I hope you feel better prepared for how to manage this potentially serious ingestion. If you like what you're listening to, feel free to follow the show on social media, uh, Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at EM Poison Farm D, Talks Talk on Instagram, and Facebook, The Poison Lab. Of course, you can find all episodes, free medical games, free resources on www.thepoisonlab.com. And don't forget to follow the show wherever you're listening to podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave a review. It helps us reach other listeners interested in toxicology. And as always, keep your ears peeled. We will be releasing a mystery case for one of our next episodes, and we want you to write in with your differentials to take part in our next episode. You can send your guesses to ToxTalk1, T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1, at gmail.com. I think that'll do it for today. Thanks for listening. Hope we can see you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.